everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh, and today we are going to be diving into another Ed and Lorraine Warren case called the Amityville Haunting. But not only that, we're going to be talking about the infamous DeFeo family massacre. Now, this is one of those cases that I think many people know of because obviously we all have heard of the Amityville Horror, the famous horror film that was remade in 2005. And actually, I watched that this past weekend and oh my God, what a what a cheesy film that was. But the original Amityville Horror film was actually really good. And I believe I first saw that film in my early teens and I remember just how much it freaked me out. So today's episode is not only a true crime episode, but it is also very much a paranormal episode because the house where this all takes place has a very dark history and it all began with the DeFeo family. And then eventually it ends up changing hands to the Lutz family who end up going through a very, very horrific paranormal haunting. But before we get into today's episode, I first wanted to say thank you all for all the support and love you guys have shown us for the show. We're already on episode 11, right, Joel? Yeah, already episode 11 already. It's just so crazy. This has been going by so fast. I can't believe we've already been at this for over two months now. I mean, it's gone by so fast and just we've been having a total blast doing this podcast every single week for you guys. And the topics just keep on lining up. Like I've got so many different topics that we're going to get into And if you guys have suggestions, uh, I will link a form that you guys can actually fill out to suggest maybe a topic you'd like us to cover on the show. Because, you know, we obviously have a lot of things that we're interested in, but I also want to hear about some of the stuff that might be out there that we might not have heard of. And again, this show covers a number of different dark topics, including serial killers to dark events to paranormal stories, hauntings, demonic possession, anything that's dark. Also, I was going to say, I want to get into cults here soon. I know a lot of you are fascinated by cults. I know Joel and I are both absolutely just like blown away by, by cults and what they do. So we've got one of those episodes coming down uh, the pipe here very soon, but yeah, definitely check out that form. And also if you guys want to help support the show, you can leave a rating or review on iTunes. Uh, That also helps us get feedback on, you know, what you guys are enjoying or maybe what you're not enjoying. And also, if you're really feeling kind, what really helps us out is even if you only enjoy the show on YouTube, if you would go to iTunes and hit the subscribe button, that really helps us. And not only that, following us on Spotify also makes a difference as well. And also, we're in the process of planning out some Lights Out merch, which will be really, really cool and hopefully coming soon as well as a fan club that we're going to try to get launched in the next month or so. So a lot of exciting things coming for Lights Out, and that is all thanks to you guys for tuning in every week. But that is all I've got for you. Let's go ahead and get into the story because this is a truly wild one. So the real-life Amityville horror story begins with the DeFeo family. Now, the DeFeo family consisted of Ronald and Luis DeFeo, the parents, who were obviously a married couple who had five children, John Matthew, Mark, Allison, Don, and the oldest was named Ronald Jr. And he was born on September 26, 1951. And he also was nicknamed Butch. Butch is going to be very essential to this story and not in a good way. So Ronald Sr. worked for his father-in-law at a successful Buick dealership in Brooklyn, New York, which enabled the family to upgrade their lifestyle significantly. And in 1965, they moved from their cramped apartment 
to a three-story Dutch colonial waterfront home built in 1927 at 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville, Long Island, New York. Doesn't sound scary at all yet? (laughs) No. That's the thing about these haunted homes is that a lot of them are very old. And the Dutch colonial style, for whatever reason, just... I think is kind of the quintessential look for a haunted house, you know, just that kind of old style architecture, the colonial look, you know, I think it's just because it's such a historical type of architecture that, you know, and so many hauntings take place in those historical homes that we oftentimes look at houses like that and think, oh yeah, that house is definitely haunted. So Amityville, Long Island is actually a small suburb on the Long Island itself with only about 10,000 residents today. And Amityville actually means friendly village. So it's a very small community, especially for New York. Everybody knows each other for the most part, and it's definitely a tight-knit place. What's really ironic and honestly kind of funny about the fact that they moved into this 1927 house is that they nicknamed the home High Hopes, and they actually placed a High Hopes sign on the front of the house because they were thrilled. I mean, they were in a tiny apartment, in New York and Brooklyn. I mean, if you've ever been to Brooklyn before or just New York city in general, it's, you know, it, everybody's got small amounts of space cause there's so many people there. So living a big family like this, living in a cramped apartment is going to be brutal. And so they were super excited that they were able to finally get a nice sized home, even though it was older, they were like, you know what, at least it's got a lot more room. It's got a yard and it's on the water. Like they thought they like hit the jackpot. They're like, this is the this is the greatest place. Oh, totally. And I'm pretty sure the house was like four floors. So this place was huge. And on the inside, it did look really nice. And like you said, they have, you know, the boathouse on the outside, like right by the water. So yeah, super nice. In a lot of ways, it was kind of like their dream home. And, you know, they, they definitely didn't have a lot of money. So the fact that they were able to get this house in the first place was such a big deal. And with seven family members, this house was perfect. It had plenty of room. So according to those that knew the DeFeo family, including family members, apparently Ronald Sr. was an intimidating man. And allegedly, he would abuse members of his family, especially Butch, their eldest child. Those two just did not get along. And it's speculated that Butch may have even suffered traumatic brain injury or just serious head trauma as a result of the abuse. Again, we don't know exactly what went on or, you know, what level the abuse was in fact, but we do know that he was definitely hard on the family members. Even some of the children's friends that came over to the house witnessed the, the father was very physical and violent, especially towards their mother, very abusive, verbally abusive. Like this guy was a very angry person for the most part. And I, I'm not sure if he struggled with any kind of alcoholism or anything like that, but there were definitely friends that came over that witnessed that. Yeah. That wouldn't surprise me at all. I mean, I, it's hard to, you know, always understand the family dynamics of, of different families, but I think maybe one factor that could play into it is the fact that, you know, he's still commuting into work into New York and he's kind of being the, you know, paying all the bills. And so, you know, maybe he has some resentment towards others in the family, but I don't know. I, I think there's probably some other factors, like you said, maybe alcoholism, drugs. I mean, we just don't know that caused him to, you know, abuse members of his family, especially Butch. It also didn't help though that Butch was a troubled kid. He got into fights at school 
as both a victim of bullying as well as being a bully himself. And this prompted his parents to seek counsel from a psychiatrist. But Butch was very, very apprehensive to any of this and often refused treatment. So when Butch refused to get treatment, instead of, you know, trying other avenues or, you know, getting other people involved to hopefully get their son help, they just started throwing money at him. And again, his parents weren't necessarily like really rich, but they definitely had some money because again, it's super expensive to live even in an apartment in New York or in Brooklyn. So when they actually moved out to this house, they had some extra money to spare. And plus Ronald senior was making a good salary at the Buick dealership. So there was some extra money to go around. They even bought Butch a $14,000 speedboat, which in today's money could cost over $88,000. And with his parents' money at his disposal, Butch started using drugs, including heroin and LSD at just 17 years old. Definitely not a good idea. And of course, starting to use substances like these at 17 years old when you're, you know, got a temper problem and you're unstable, it's definitely going to make things worse. And that's exactly what happened. Butch's violent tendencies worsened and eventually he was expelled from school. Butch was then given a job as a mechanic at the family Buick dealership with a generous salary and few responsibilities. What a great reward for getting expelled from school. Hey man, heard you got expelled from school for drugs and fighting. Here's a nice job at the the dealership as a mechanic. Why would they want, first of all, why would they want Butch working at the dealership as a mechanic if he's doing LSD and heroin? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. That doesn't seem like a good idea. Yeah, that's a risk, man. Not only that, he's starting to stockpile a secret stash of guns. So instead of his parents actually getting a grip on him and starting to, you know, try to help him get on the right path, they did quite the opposite. Ronald Sr. did all of this in the hopes that it would make their relationship better and they would get closer, but it did exactly the opposite. In fact, Butch started threatening his father's life on at least one occasion and even at one point staged a robbery to steal thousands of dollars from his family's dealership. What a great son. And upon being questioned by police about the robbery, Butch was uncooperative and hostile toward law enforcement. Surprise, surprise. Prefacing future interactions with investigators following the heinous crimes to come. And it's speculated that the DeFeo's business success and the wealth they accrued is partly due to connections to the mob and organized crime. Why does that not surprise me at all? Butch also allegedly had a contentious relationship with his sister, Dawn, fighting with her all the time. And at age 18, Dawn was reportedly fighting with her parents over her boyfriend, William Davidge, who Ronald Sr. and Louise disliked. William was known to drink heavily and do drugs and was prone to violence, and Dawn wanted to move with him to Florida. But her parents obviously did not like that idea one bit. And at this point in the family's history, the stage was set for literally one of the most violent and horrific crimes this town has ever seen, even to this day. So on November 13th, 1974, around 3.15 a.m., 23-year-old Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. crept through his family's home, wielding a recently purchased 35 caliber Marlin rifle, which was one of the guns in his gun stash that he had hidden from his family. And Butch stepped quietly into his parents' bedroom, where they both slept soundly. Face down in their bed, he took aim at his father, Ronald Sr., and shot him twice in the back. 
ripping through his kidney, chest, spine, and neck, and killing him nearly instantly. His mother, Louise, awoke from the gun blasts, but before she could turn around in her bed, Butch shot her twice through the ribcage and lung. She collapsed back onto her stomach and lay dead next to her husband. Not far down the hall, Butch's younger brothers, Mark and John, stayed in their beds disturbingly, also lying face down in the same position as their parents. Butch entered their room and shot them each once, killing them both. The boys were just 9 and 12 years old. Butch then entered his sister's Allison's room next door. Allison, now awake, had just enough time to look up at her older brother before he shot her once in the face, killing the 13-year-old girl where she lay. Her final position was face down on her stomach. Butch's last family member left alive, Don, was just a few years younger than him at 18 and was also his closest sibling in age. She slept on a different floor from the rest of her family, and the murders ended with her brutal killing, the final blast of Butch's rifle blowing off the entire left side of her face, and she too was found lying face down. The fact that all six murdered members of the DeFeo family were found face down on their stomachs tucked neatly in their beds is an extremely chilling detail. With no presence of a silencer on the murder weapon, it stands to reason that the children should have all awoken when their parents were shot. At least one of them should have crawled out of bed, maybe even made it into the hallway. But nope, they remained in their beds awaiting their inevitable doom. Each blast of Bush's rifle rang loudly through the early morning hour, and all the while the family's dog Shaggy barked furiously from outside the boathouse where he was tied up. Later, the neighbors would report that they did hear Shaggy barking, but this wasn't odd to them as Shaggy was known to be a loud dog. However, it still remains unclear why no one reported hearing the gunshots, eight in total, one for each of Butch's four siblings, and two for each of his parents. The report from the shots of the 35 caliber Marlin rifle can be heard from almost a mile away. That is probably one of the craziest things about this, is that no one heard this rifle go off, And after all these shots, I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. And I don't think it makes any sense to anybody else that showed up to this scene because uh, that's a fairly powerful weapon and people should have heard that. And why didn't everybody wake up after the first initial shots when he killed his parents? That's still a mystery. Yeah, that just blows my mind how none of the family members heard any of the gunshots that went off that night. And especially how the family was kind of scattered throughout the house. Like they, they were sleeping in different bedrooms on different floors. Cause to me, if I heard a gunshot like that, I mean, I know for sure I would be wide awake after that. And it's just so surprising how none of the family members woke up and even like check to see maybe what it was like, just how they didn't even hear it at all. And we know that none of them were drugged or anything before. So yeah, it's, it's just really hard to wrap my mind around how none of the family members heard those gunshots and even any of the neighbors. It's almost like everything that happened inside of this house was contained within it. And not only that, everybody was sleeping in their beds, but they were also contained within their beds. Like they weren't able to get up. They weren't able, you know, Either the gunshots were not audible at all for whatever reason. I mean, that's a complete mystery and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that more in here in a bit, but it seems to me that something very 
weird was going on in that house that night. Something, something perhaps paranormal even was happening. And we'll again, get into that in a minute, but yeah, it's, it's very, very odd. After everything is done, Butch then goes from room to room, picking up the spent cartridges from the gun. And then he tucked in his murdered family members snuggly into their beds, perhaps to ease his own guilt or as a deranged final goodbye. Butch then placed the murder weapon and his now bloody clothes into a pillowcase. After taking a shower and trimming his beard, he dressed in his normal work attire and headed out, pillowcase in tow. Before sunrise, Butch ditched the evidence down a storm drain in Brooklyn and then headed to work, arriving at the dealership back in Long Island around 6 a.m., which is apparently much earlier than he usually arrived at work. And this was part of Butch's plan in order to attempt to establish an alibi. It was also around this time that Walter Christian was walking his dog near the DeFeo home and noticed that all the upstairs lights were on. As he frequently walked by the home at that time, he noticed that this was strange because they were usually not on at that point. While separately, Butch committed parricide by murdering his parents and fratricide by murdering his siblings when he shot and killed the last surviving member of his immediate family, his sister Dawn, he became a family annihilator. Butch joined the ranks of notorious family annihilators, including convicted murderer John List, who killed his wife, his three children, and his mother in 1971, and probable family annihilator Albin Johnson, who vanished when his pregnant wife and seven children died in a mysterious house fire in 1933. Contrary to common belief, though, Butch is not a serial killer which is characterized by killing multiple victims during separate events. Since all of Butch's killings took place within minutes, the FBI would consider him a mass murderer because he's killed four or more people during the same event. And because he eliminated every member of his immediate family, he remains a family annihilator. Like family annihilators before him, Butch worked carefully to cover his tracks. Throughout the day, he continued to call home, first from the dealership and later on from his girlfriend Sherry's apartment, feigning confusion when there was no answer. Throughout the morning, more than one visitor approached the DeFeo home. An exterminator named Alan Sayani arrived around 8.30 a.m. for a scheduled monthly visit. He heard Shaggy barking and noted that there were two cars in the driveway, but no one answered the door. Just minutes after Alan left, Catherine O'Reilly arrived as usual to take the DeFeo children to school. She saw the lights on upstairs and the cars in the driveway, but again, no one answered the door. The DeFeo's regular mail carrier, Carlton Irwood, dropped off the mail around 10.45 a.m. and thought it was odd that Shaggy didn't appear at the door and wasn't tied up outside. He also took note of the DeFeo's cars in the driveway. After an afternoon of shopping with Sherry, Butch went to see his friend Bobby, who he had run into earlier in the day. Again, he explained his confusion that there was no answer when he called home. Before Butch left, he and Bobby made plans to meet at a local bar near his family's home at 6 p.m. that night. At about 3 p.m., Catherine O'Reilly again knocked on the DeFeo's door. She heard Shaggy barking, but no one answered. At 5 p.m., Catherine tried to call the DeFeo's, but no one answered. At 5.30 p.m., she left a note on the door and saw that the upstairs lights were still on, as they had been since she had arrived that morning to pick up the children for school. In the hours preceding the planned meetup with his friend Bobby, Butch saw more friends. He drank and took heroin and managed to beat Bobby to the bar. Butch is just having a normal day. It almost seems like he's celebrating 
this horrific crime that he had just committed the night before. And once Bobby arrived at the bar, Butch explained that he had still not got an answer from home and announced he was going to investigate before leaving the bar, thinking he's so smart by pretending to call home when he knows no one will answer. With barely enough time to finish a drink and a full 15 hours since he had murdered his family, Butch burst back into the bar exclaiming, Bob, you gotta help me. Someone shot my mother and father. Bobby, Butch, and a few other men headed to the DeFeo house and found the gruesome scene. One of the men, Joey Yeswit, called the police from the phone in the kitchen, telling the operator, we have a shooting here. When asked if anyone was hurt, Joey replied, yeah, it's a, uh, uh, everybody's dead. The first police officer to arrive on the scene was Officer Kenneth Gaguski, and when he arrived, he found the bodies of Butch's parents and brothers. When Officer Edwin Tyndall arrived, Butch was inconsolable and said he had two sisters as well. The two officers then found Allison and Don's bodies, covered in too much blood for them to determine what had killed them. When questioned by Suffolk County Detective Gaspar Rendazzo, Butch speculated that his family was murdered by a mafia hitman named Louis Fellini, who had been at odds with him in the recent past over a dispute related to his work at the dealership. To protect Butch, now a supposed potential target as a lone survivor of a mob hit, he was taken into police custody where he gave his official statement, claiming complete ignorance of the crime, literally saying he had no idea what had happened, was not involved. Butch claimed that Fellini had lived with his family, helping his father hide cash and valuable gems in their basement before their falling out. Butch was allowed to go to sleep around 3 a.m., 24 hours after murdering his family, and was eventually released. However, within days, the detectives uncovered evidence that suggested Butch could be the murderer, including a box that proved his possession of a gun identical to the murder weapon, and more about his troubled past and previous run-ins with the law. The mafia hitman, Louis Fellini, also provided an alibi, confirming that he was not even in New York when the killings occurred. Upon further questioning, it became very clear that Butch's timeline for what had happened didn't add up, and it was very clear that he was home at the time of the murders. And once they figured this out, Butch began grasping at straws, even going so far as to claim Louis Fellini had an accomplice, and they forced him at gunpoint to watch his family members be murdered. The detectives continued questioning Butch's story until he finally broke down admitting Fellini and his mystery accomplice were never there. And that's when he confessed, it all started so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. Butch later went on to confess that he had murdered his entire family in cold blood. According to a New York Times article from 1974, Butch admitted to giving excessive doses of barbiturates to his family members by adding it to their dinner the night before the murders. And this report has not been substantiated. However, the presence of these drugs would go a long way in explaining how one gunman shot six people at close range while in their beds with no signs of a struggle from any of them. Now these factors are very important when trying to wrap your head around why this happened. What led Butch to do such a heinous crime like he did. 
And obviously, people are going to point to drugs as to the reason why the family members were seemingly passed out. I mean, they were asleep. But again, if a gun at that caliber goes off, it can be heard a mile away. So why didn't after the gun went off once, twice, three times that at least somebody not wake up and get up and get the fuck out of the house? Why did that not happen? And again, there's no evidence as far as we know that suggests that they were given drugs or that they had drugs in their systems. So with that being said, what are some other possibilities here? One possibility that I think of is that the night of the murders, Butch actually mentioned in an interview that he was downstairs in the basement that night just watching TV and he was under the influence of what I believe was heroin or some kind of drug in his system. And while he was sitting there in the basement, he claimed that he could hear voices, almost like his family members were talking about killing him. Like he was convinced that these voices were warning him that he was about to die. And while he was sitting there just kind of, you know, very foggy minded, just kind of in this whole daze, he remembers seeing like a hooded uh, figure that looked like a woman, so to speak. Uh, he claims it was like an entity of some sort, maybe, you know, an evil one. And while he was sitting there on the couch, this entity started walking up towards him. And it actually was holding the rifle that Butch used that night to murder his whole family. And at the time, he didn't know what to think of it. But then he started hearing voices from this entity saying, do it, you know, kill them, those types of things. And I think the fact that he was under the influence of drugs, he might have not been thinking things clearly. He was, you know, like I said, completely convinced that his family was planning to kill him. So he ended up grabbing the rifle and, you know, heading upstairs and going room to room, killing each and every one of his family members. What else is important to note as well is Butch was really close uh, with his sister, Dawn. I mean, although they fought a lot and everything, that was definitely his closest family member in the house. I mean, they spent a lot of time together. They talked about a lot of different things. And there's this theory out there that Butch and Don at one point were kind of talking and premeditating murdering the entire family. And there is some evidence out there that investigators did see that made them believe that there was no way that Butch was able to do this whole thing on his own. And that's where, you know, Don comes into the picture because Don was the last person that got killed that night. And what the whole theory is behind that is Don might have helped Butch, you know, execute the entire plan. And then once all the family members, you know, were murdered, you know, Don was left and Butch just ended up, you know, turning the gun on her and killing her. And then that kind of goes back to how it might, Butch might have not even killed all of the family members. Don could have killed most of them and then, you know, that, but evidence then with butch being the last person there they put all the murders on him but what what do you think it could be any of those things i mean we don't really know but my my thinking about all of this is that if drugs were not used i think it comes back to the way that the family members are lying in their beds right they're all on their stomachs 
they're all for the most part shot in the back. So either, you know, when they did, if Butch and Don were in this together, you know, maybe they were drugged and maybe they flipped them over onto their backs for some reason, or if they weren't drugged, perhaps Don like held them down or Butch held them down while Don shot the the rifle at them. I mean, it's, we really don't know, but again, I think if drugs are not in play here, I think it's very unlikely that you find all of the family members that are murdered all lying face down in their beds, you know, the way that they did. It's very eerie the way that they were all found, you know, at the scene is that it really doesn't make sense. It's like, what are the chances that all the family members just happen to be sleeping in their beds face down? I think something happened in, you know, during that time to where they all ended up face down. And on that note, what else is interesting was when the autopsy results came in for all the family members afterwards, they concluded that none of the family members who were murdered put up any kind of a struggle or even attempted to try and escape uh, the situation. So to me, it totally makes me think that it's possible that Maybe they were drugged or they were knocked out. You know, they were unconscious before the shooting took place. But it's just a tough call. Yeah. And with no evidence backing up the fact that they were drugged, then I I really don't know what you make of it because it, it really doesn't make sense. And then back to the whole paranormal aspect of this. And if, in fact, this home was possessed by some type of evil entity of some sort, you know, it really makes it really then, you know, completely throws a wrench into everything because I mean, it seems like they were all kind of locked down to their beds. And if Butch did act alone, which in my opinion, I think that's probably the most likely scenario is Butch did carry this out, but could Butch have been, you know, hearing things and been told or even possessed himself by an entity to do this? Yeah, definitely. I think it's definitely a possibility. If Butch was approached by that evil entity in the basement, you know, slowly walking up to him, holding that rifle and trying to persuade Butch to go through with killing his whole family. I mean, what's tough call about that is, I mean, he was under the influence of drugs and your mind can play tricks on you, obviously, when you are under the influence of that. So it's tough because was it true Was he just using that maybe as kind of like an escape route that it wasn't completely his idea? But the fact that he was hearing those voices and everything, I mean, that's a clear sign of paranormal activity right there. So it's definitely possible that that house could have been, uh, you know, a lot of paranormal activity going on. Absolutely. Or maybe Butch is suffering from schizophrenia. I mean, like we noted earlier, he did get abused growing up and had head injuries. And perhaps he did have some sort of traumatic brain injury that would cause some sort of natural state in which he starts hearing voices or something like that. But in this particular story, and as we'll, we'll find out more when we move into the Lutz family's story in the house, it really does seem that there's something paranormal going on here and something very evil lurking in the basement of this house. But in the end, all six murdered family members of the DeFeo family were laid to rest at St. Charles Cemetery in Farmingdale, New York. 
Almost a year after murdering his family, Butch's trial started on October 14, 1975. Butch's lawyer attempted to establish an insanity defense. And during his own testimony, Butch confessed to the killing, claiming that he did not recognize his mother and that he killed his family in self-defense. Perhaps most disturbingly, though, as Butch testified in the trial that voices in the house commanded him to murder and that he was in fact God. The prosecutor highlighted the inconsistencies in Butch's claims and upon cross-examination agitated him enough that during his testimony, Butch said, quote, you think I'm playing? If I had any sense, which I don't, I'd come down there and kill you now. Psychiatrists testified for the defense and for the prosecution and the defense team was seeking to prove that Butch suffered from a dissociative disorder. This type of disorder is characterized by experiencing life from outside of one's own body, therefore proving that Butch could not have willfully killed his family since his actions were out of his control. The prosecution sought to prove that Butch had a diagnosis of just antisocial personality disorder, and this disorder is characterized by an indifference to the concept of right versus wrong, while maintaining a clear understanding of what is wrong. With this diagnosis, Butch would be culpable for his actions. And ultimately, the prosecution was successful. Butch was found guilty in all six counts of second-degree murder and sentenced to six consecutive life sentences for the slayings of his family. During his incarceration, Butch has continued to alter his betrayal of the events that transpired that fateful November morning. In one story, Butch claimed that his sister Dawn killed Ronald Sr., and he only killed his mother after she murdered all of his siblings in a distressed haze. He then took the blame to preserve his mother's memory. Butch has also claimed that his sister Don was the murderer of the family, perhaps along with an unnamed partner, and that he only killed her after her accomplice fled and Butch discovered what had been done. In another version, Butch claimed he and Don plotted together with two friends to kill their parents after they found out their parents planned to murder Butch. But when he discovered that she had murdered the rest of his siblings too, he turned the gun on her. I don't know. It seems to me that he's just all confused. And he's just, you know, the fact that he's changing his story so much just goes to show you that you can't trust anything he says clearly. And the fact that he's trying to deflect to Don, again, we don't know for sure. Perhaps Don was involved. There is definitely a possibility of that. But at the same time, I think all the evidence and the signs point to Butch carrying everything out. And, you know, he's just confused in his head for whatever reason, you know, obviously he's trying to deflect blame for what happened, probably because he feels guilty that his family, his entire family's dead because of him. But at the same time, we just really don't know what to believe. Gunpowder residue on Don's nightgown had been held up as possible proof that she was involved and many have questioned the logistics of a lone gunman killing six people in different rooms who seemingly never left their beds. While the gunpowder residue on Don's nightgown can be explained by police mishandling evidence, a possible struggle with Butch, or perhaps as a result of being shot, it has complicated the facts of the case, fueling skepticism that Butch is the lone murderer of the DeFeo family. Some have even theorized that Butch and Don planned the murder together in order to inherit their parents' wealth. Then when Don realized Butch intended to murder her as well, a struggle ensued leading to her gruesome demise. 
It's also possible that Butch's motivation came partly from a life insurance policy on Ronald Sr. worth $200,000. And with the rest of his family dead, he would be the sole beneficiary. That to me sounds like probably the motive here for Butch. I, I think it was money. And, you know, if he can get his father out of the way, his father's abusive. You, you know, he hates his father. They've had this horrible relationship that, you know, not only can I take him out, but I can also reap all the benefits as far as the money goes. Now, this is another interesting note to add. A documentary filmmaker, Ryan Katzenbach, is convinced that evidence proves Butch had to have an accomplice to carry out the murders. And the evidence he cites includes a gun found in a canal located behind the DeFeo house by underwater archaeologists, as well as a second pillowcase that was discarded near the canal. Again, I don't know if this proves that he had an accomplice, because for all we know, Butch could have went and threw that in there. I mean, there was that whole next day that he was running around going to work or whatever. Then he went to the bar that he could have easily went and threw a, you know, another gun. Or I guess the theory is, is that the accomplice on the way out of the house after the murders dumped the extra evidence, despite his efforts to prove his innocence and appeal to the parole board, Ronald DeFeo jr. Still resides at the Sullivan correctional facility located in Falsburg, New York. So that's the sad, tragic story of the DeFeo family and the horrible end that they met at the hands of Butch. So with Butch in prison for the murders of his family, the DeFeo family home remained vacant, but not for long. Because again, this house is a beautiful property. I mean, if you look at it during the day, it's, it's beautiful. It's right on the water. But then at night, that's when the home's sinister history becomes very apparent. What's really kind of creepy about this house, if you've never seen it before, it has these two windows at the front of it, and it almost looks like eyes on the house. And if you've ever seen the Amityville horror movies, they really, you know, make this house look extra creepy. And those two windows start glowing and they definitely help appeal to that creepy haunted house look. Now, when you think about it, after this horrible massacre happened, obviously, who's going to want to move into this house? Right. I mean, who would want to move into a home where a whole family was massacred? I sure wouldn't. Yeah, no way. Because I mean, I mean, I can't even imagine what the energy is there. I can't imagine, you know, the type of paranormal activity that was likely already there. And now you have potentially the DeFeo family spirits now lingering in the home. Because I mean, if you know anything about spirits, a lot of times they remain where they, you know, have a connection to their last place here on earth. So their last moments on earth were in their home and it was a very, very horrible, tragic end. So it's possible for them to have remained in this home in some way, shape or form. Again, this is just speculative, but could happen. Not only remain, but it might've even made those entities and their presence so much stronger after such a tragic, negative, horrific event. I mean, obviously they feed on all that negative energy. So it just makes me think that before the Lutz family moved in, 
they were just way more powerful than before. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty common with any sort of haunted house or a location with high amounts of paranormal activity is something extremely dark, evil, tragic takes place. And whatever entity could be living there before could definitely use all that fear and hatred and anger and grief in order to make itself stronger. And so this leads us to the next occupants that were brave enough to move in, George and Kathy Lutz and their three children. And this is where we now get the famous story of the Amityville Horror, which was a book released in 1977 and then made into a movie and then remade into another movie in 2005, which I watched the remake of the Amityville Horror this past weekend, and I had no idea that Ryan Reynolds was George Lutz. <laughs> right. And I got to say, when watching it, it was very hard to really enjoy the movie because like, yeah. Ryan Reynolds is Deadpool, man. Like for sure. It's hard to not see him as that anymore. And to see him like playing this horror character was just kind of odd to me and kind of made it a little cheesy. I feel like, and less scary because it's Ryan Reynolds, man. Like he's such a cool guy. So funny that I don't know. It just was hard to watch. So the Lutz family purchased the home on 112 ocean Avenue in 1975 for only $80,000. Because, I mean, this house sat on the market for a while. I mean, nobody wanted to move into this home for fear of, you know, what might happen to their family. Because there was a lot of people that, a lot of ghost hunters, conspiracy theorists, just a lot of people in the public that really thought that this house was haunted. That there was something evil lurking within this home, which caused Butch to carry out the murders. I mean, that came up in trial. So, this was very publicized at this point. And obviously with, you know, the book that would come out a few years later, this just only grew as time went on. Now the Lutz family claims that they had no prior knowledge of the violent crimes that took place in that house just over a year before. Although it has been reported that the murders were disclosed to them by a real estate broker before they moved in, because what fucking real estate broker is going to try to slide that under the table? I mean, you got to tell people it's like your job as a real estate broker to tell your, you know, people you're selling the home to what happened there before. If something like this did, you know, something horrible happened, it's your responsibility to let them know like, Hey, you know, just before you buy this house, you might want to know that a whole family was murdered here. And the realtor was not straightforward with that information when the Lutz family first looked at the home and you know, when they first walked in, they were looking inside and they just fell in love with how nice it was and how spacious it was because, you know, they came from a, you know, a smaller home before. So it's kind of like a mini mansion to them that they, they felt like, and it wasn't until the end until after the family made up their minds, like they're super interested in getting it. And then George at the end to the realtor was like, okay, but I have to ask, what is the catch? And that was when the realtor was like, okay, you know, I'll tell you. So, and they still, and they still got it afterwards. Which I would love to have seen that, that conversation when George is like, what's the catch? 80,000 bucks for this giant house on, on the water. Like there's gotta be a catch. Right. And the realtor is like, yeah. So about the catch, a whole family was murdered here. I mean, 
I wonder how that went because I bet that was fucking awkward as, as shit. Oh, I bet. Realtor to be like, uh, yeah, have you heard of the DeFeo family? Yeah, they all died here because holy shit. But yeah, that, apparently that did not deter George and the Lutz family from buying the home. I, I think to them, they were just like, ah, oh, whatever, you know. You know, it's probably fine. It's a great deal. It's way bigger. Again, it's a nice house, especially during the day. It's beautiful. The property's big, grassy. You know, you got the boathouse. It, it's actually a really, really nice spot. But, you know, at night, things are a little bit different there. And I feel like the Lutz family did, didn't even question that, you know, once they heard about it. I mean, I'm sure they were shocked and they were like, you know, a terrible thing has happened in this home and we're going to be living in here now. But I feel like they were a family who did not believe in like the paranormal or, you know, evil entities and things like that. So I kind of feel like that was a reason why they decided to move in because, you know, they were just in love with the house. Well, yeah. I mean, if you believe in paranormal activity at all, you ain't going to move into the house at all. Like if you have any sort of, you know, paranormal beliefs. So they were like, yeah, let's do it. And during their 28 day stay there, they only occupied the house for 28 days. They claim to have experienced nearly every paranormal phenomenon imaginable. At the time, the children were all under 10 years old. Daniel was nine, Christopher was seven, and Melissa was only five. And like the DeFeo family, the Lutz family also had a dog whose name was Harry. And when they moved in, the house was still adorned with many of the DeFeo's family's possessions including most of their furniture, which I would have been like, get that out of here to have the family's furniture there. Ooh. And the belongings still in the house were added to the total sale. It was only 400 bucks. So they're like, yeah, keep the furniture 400 bucks. That's cheap. Some reports even claim that the Lutz family slept on the same beds or at least use the same bed frames where the DeFeo family was murdered. That to me is insane and I can't imagine that that's true, but if it is, that's fucking crazy. I mean, that, that's just weird. And especially how they were informed that the last family, they were all murdered in all of those beds as well. Like who the fuck would even want to come close to one, like something like that, you know, if it were me and I'd bought this house, I would have, t- I would say, get all that furniture out here and we're going to make a giant bonfire and we're going to burn all of it. Oh yeah. And honestly, maybe even burn the whole house down at that point. Like who would want to move into that house? I just don't get it. Apparently at the time that the family moved into the home, George and Kathy were not very active in their religion or their respective churches, Methodist and Catholic, but due to a friend begging them to have the house blessed by a priest. So the couple had father Ray, a Catholic priest, bless the home for them. And apparently later on, father Ray claimed that when he attempted to carry out a blessing in the former bedroom of John Matthew and Mark DeFeo, he heard a booming voice command him get out. And in addition to hearing the voice, father Ray also felt an invisible being slapping his face. And instead of telling George what he experienced, he opted to only warn him on a phone call not to enter the room. But static interference cut off the call. And his suspicions that something evil was lurking in the home only got greater 
when after conducting the blessing, his hands broke out in blisters and he developed a high fever. But over the next several weeks, the Lutz family claimed that their fears grew as the paranormal events took over their lives. They claimed that ghosts and spirits roamed the halls, objects levitated in midair, and bright green slime oozed from the walls, through keyholes and up through the floorboards. The family encountered mysterious swarms of flies, and in the window at night, they saw the terrifying glowing eyes of a demonic green-eyed pig. Odd and disturbing smells were also very prevalent. At one point, a knife flew across the kitchen, and the garage door opened and closed at will all the time. George Lutz woke up in the middle of the night to find his wife levitating above their bed. And when checking on the children, Christopher and Daniel were also levitating as well. Daniel Lutz later on even confirmed when he was nine years old at the time, he stated that an unexplained phenomenon took place each night at precisely 3.15 a.m. Quote, 3.15, the devil's number, he explained. This is also the approximate time when it is believed that Butch murdered his family. Daniel also believes that some of the hauntings were caused by his stepfather's interest in the occult and that the happenings in the house have plagued him with nightmares and ruined his life. Daniel's brother, Christopher Quarantino, who was seven at the time they lived in the DeFeo home, has also affirmed as an adult that the hauntings were real. However, he does admit that much of the accounts have been exaggerated, particularly by their stepfather, George. Kathy Lutz allegedly experienced disturbing dreams witnessing the death of Luis DeFeo, although she saw her being shot in the head instead of the torso and of Luis's body being removed from the cemetery. She even said she experienced vivid dreams of an affair that Luis had with the man who painted the DeFeo family portraits. After once again trying to free the house of evil spirits through a blessing, George and Kathy Lutz took their family to stay with Kathy's mother. The family has never recounted that final night to anyone and the terrifying final events that convinced them to flee. However, their intention was not to flee for good. They intended to return to their house once they could figure out a way to vanquish the evil spirits. While staying with Kathy's mother, the family claims an oozing slime appeared on the staircase and lurked toward them, and that Kathy and George Lutz both levitated in their bed, petrified. They knew the evil presence in the house had followed them there, that's when George and Kathy decided to never return to the house. They hired a mover to collect some of their things and left the rest to be auctioned off at a later date. Shortly after, the family relocated to San Diego. At this point, the Lutz family is desperate to get help with their home. I mean, they, they love their home. They want to stay there, but they can't stand all of the paranormal activity that they're experiencing. I mean, in addition to all the things we already named, they're hearing screams, they're feeling touches by unknown forces. They're cold all the time. George talks about how he had to constantly keep the fire going in the furnace because the house was just so eerily cold all the time. But essentially, they experience pretty much every known paranormal activity that's out there. I mean, there's nothing that they didn't experience. I mean, the levitating to me is probably one of the most frightening things to experience. But the oozing from the walls to the you know, this potentially pig looking entity. I mean, who knows what even that's about. What's interesting about the pig entity that the daughter saw through her bedroom window on the top floor was she noticed it had like red eyes that would just stare at her at night. 
and it wouldn't move and you know it, it would come and go but it would definitely uh be peering through her window for the most most of the time and later on what was interesting was the neighbor actually recognized that that pig that the daughter called jody was actually like a, a fat farm cat of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah. It just was like, okay. So it wasn't a, like an entity of any kind. It was, it seemed like it was debunked to be a cat. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one of those things with a lot of these paranormal cases is that with extraordinary claims, like the Lutz family is making, especially George, obviously a lot of these things are being reported by George Lutz. There's got to be some evidence to back it up. Well, one of the other things that we've been able to debunk is the fact that the priest never even went to the house and that whole ex- negative experience the priest supposedly had never even happened because when the priest was actually interviewed he said i never went to that house i only talked to him over the phone so it seems to me that george lutz is you know creating a lot of these claims in order to do what well let's talk about that in a minute it's also believed that the paranormal activity in the home or an evil entity was actually targeting George for the most part out of everyone in the family. And I think that goes back to the DeFeo family on how uh, Butch was the one who murdered everyone. So George was the only adult man in the house at the time. And they would only like irritate him. George did say that he could hear voices and that he would get really agitated, very angry. Even his wife recognized that he wasn't being himself after only a few days in the home. Like he was just mean to everybody. And he also claimed that he heard his dog, Harry, often bark outside in the boathouse in the middle of the night. And it would just drive him crazy, and it didn't seem to bother the rest of the family. But George just lost his mind that you know one night he went out to the boathouse, like, "What the fuck are you barking at? Like, stop barking!" He's just super pissed off. And what's interesting was the boathouse had a lock on it, so he could still hear his dog Harry inside the boathouse barking. But once he opens it, Harry is not there. So he was going through kind of like a, a a complete mental like shit show basically which is this something paranormal or is this something psychological that's happening to him maybe as a result of something paranormal or to me this is sounding like george is attempting to replicate events that butch defeo talked about and experienced or so he claims so with that in mind let's talk about the ed and lorraine warren investigation of 112 ocean avenue in previous episodes we've talked about ed and lorraine warren we've also done a more of a deep dive on them in one of our episodes and for those that don't know ed and lorraine warren were a married couple of paranormal investigators Ed claims to be a religious demonologist and Lorraine was definitely more of a clairvoyant medium type individual. Now, with that being said, a lot of people are skeptical of the Warrens because of many of their seemingly unearthly claims, as well as many of their conclusions being in many of their cases that the houses they visit are indeed haunted. 
Now, when they arrived at George Lutz's home, the pair of ghost hunters also brought along a television crew along with other paranormal professionals in order to investigate. Now, George Lutz had refused to come near the house in order to let Ed and Lorraine Warren inside. Instead, he met them at a local business four blocks away in order to give them the key. And when asked about what made his family flee, George was too afraid to speak of what they had experienced. Upon entering the home for the first time, Lorraine felt an overwhelming and terrible depression, and Ed noted that the house reeked of death, though they say they were unaware of the details of its gruesome history at the time. Ed, as he normally did, headed down immediately into the basement, where he believed evil spirits are the most likely to reside, because it's dark and it's obviously closer to hell. And as a religious demonologist, he used a crucifix as protection and asked the spirit to reveal itself. As soon as he did that, he said he felt a sudden pressure on his head and shoulders, which forced him to the floor. He also felt an intense sensation on his skin, which he described as hundreds of pinpoints of electricity, and he couldn't breathe. The presence lifted when he commanded it to leave in the name of the blood of Christ. Meanwhile, Lorraine is going upstairs with the crew, not realizing that Ed had just gone into the basement. And while standing in a room at the front of the house, Lorraine claims to have seen visions of bodies lined up on the floor. This room is where the bodies of the DeFeo family were placed before being removed from the house. As Lorraine ascended the stairs, she felt the intense pressure of rushing water, which was similar to the same force that Ed felt in the basement. Continuing up the stairs and still grasping the relic, Lorraine entered the sewing room which is the room where Father Ray was told by an unseen voice to get out before being slapped across the face by an invisible presence. And it also had been the bedroom of John Matthew and Mark DeFeo. When she entered the space, Lorraine said aloud, quote, I hope this is as close to hell as I will ever get. As they moved through the home, Ed and Lorraine took note of the eerie state of the Lutz's belongings. Dishes were left out on the counters and in the sink. Plants were in need of watering. Bolts of material lay in the sewing room ready to be used. To the investigators, this was proof that Kathy and George Lutz had fled their home suddenly without planning. At one point, Lorraine sat on one of the murder victim's beds and attempted to contact the dead. Those present in the room experienced intense panic and severe heart palpitations. Since this date, most of these men have died from heart problems. Another member of their party, Gene Campbell, discovered the presence of a demon with glowing eyes via infrared time-lapse photographs, though these photographs were not shown to the public until years later. The now infamous picture of a demonic boy with glowing eyes continues to fascinate and terrify believers and non-believers alike to this day. Now looking at this photograph, I gotta say, if this is real, this is very impressive. And I don't know, man. It definitely looks like a face for sure. You got glowing eyes. And then when you zoom in on it, it definitely looks like the body of a boy. Definitely demonic in nature, it seems. But I don't know. It's one of those things that photographs are very, very easy to either look at the wrong way or manipulate. So it's really hard to say. I mean, why didn't they release this sooner? Right. I agree. I mean, it's so hard to say if, if this photo is actually a real picture of like a boy entity, because, you know, 
the cameras that they had during this time are nothing like they are now. And even, you know, like on shows like ghost adventures, even with their cameras that they have, it is so difficult for them to even get anything close to like a humanoid figure. So the fact that this picture that they got, you know, a a while back ago being this clear is just really mind blowing, you know, because if this is real, if this is really a, an entity of some sort, then I am totally convinced that, you know, this is, this was actually in the house. You know, my whole thing with it though, is that it looks almost too real, right? You know, based upon other photographic evidence of spirits and ghosts that have been captured, oftentimes it's a very faint figure. Now, what we have here is a clear cut, almost in the flesh looking boy that to me doesn't look like, you know, was just happened, happened to be there. You know, it looks like kind of a stage photograph to me. And I, I don't know. It's really hard to say. Cause again, for all we know, this could be a real time-lapse photograph that they have. But again, if it was a time-lapse photograph, I don't even know if that even works in order to get something as clear and concise as this. Cause the time-lapse would be a bunch of things really quickly, I believe. So right. the fact that they have such a great still image of, of, the figure of this boy is, is really crazy to me that, you know, this could be real in any way. Some believe that the demon boy in the photograph is in fact, the spirit of the murdered DeFeo boy, John Matthew. He was nine years old when he was murdered in his bed, which would kind of make sense because the boy in the picture does look to be, you know, around the same age that John Matthew was when he was murdered. But then again, I mean, it could be completely fake. But after Ed and Lorraine Warren concluded their investigation, there was no doubt in their mind that the house was haunted. This particular paranormal case is one of those that has probably some of the most clear and concise evidence to debunk all of the paranormal claims made by the Lutz family. To start, Butch DeFeo's lawyer, William Weber, was also an associate of Kathy and George Lutz. William Weber actually told the Associated Press in 1979 that Kathy Lutz made up her nightmares to sensationalize the story, and that year he wrote an article for People Magazine detailing how the entirety of the haunting was made up by himself and George and Kathy Lutz while drinking lots of wine. What's also interesting is that the Lutz family actually ended up cutting out William Weber out of any profitable ventures, which may have prompted his confessions of helping to fabricate the hoax. Dr. Stephen Kaplan published a book in 1955 with his wife, Roxanne Kaplan, called The Amityville Horror Conspiracy, in which the couple claims to expose the Lutz's family fraudulent claims. One disturbing real-life detail is the presence of the red phone in the DeFeo household. Only Ronald Sr. had the number for the red phone, and he used it to check in on Luis because he believed she may have been having an affair, a fact that some see as corroborating Kathy's dream about Luis making love to a painter. Another strange detail is the existence of the so-called Red Room, which is a small closet located under the stairs in the basement of the house. The Lutz family claimed the room smelled of blood, that the walls could have been covered in blood, and that their dog Harry became petrified when brought near it. They even went so far as to claim it was a gateway to hell. Also, Kathy and George Lutz were very vocal during Butch's trial, defending him on the grounds that the house was indeed occupied by evil demons and spirits. 
Whether or not the house is truly haunted, the fact remains that the Lutz family fled the property after just 28 days. Some claim this is due to financial problems, while others hold fast to the paranormal story of a family terrorized by demons and ghosts. And when asked about the accounts of evil spirits and hauntings in the former home, Butch DeFeo said, quote, The only thing that's real were the murders. Yes, it's all a hoax. It's all about money. A cold-blooded murder, period. No ghosts. No demons. This ain't funny no more. People look in my eyes like I'm possessed or something. I'm sick of it. Ironically, the story of the Amityville haunting may have been born during Butch's trial by his own defense team. But George and Kathy Lutz have never wavered in their claim that the Amityville Horror House is haunted. Even after their divorce in 1988, their claims didn't change. They both even agreed to and passed a polygraph test in 1979. However, they died just two years apart from each other, Kathy in 2004 and George in 2006. I mean, at this point, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, even Butch DeFeo himself later on said that the Lutzes just pretty much capitalized on this opportunity in order to come up with this story that they knew would make a great horror tale. I mean, all these murders happened there, and all of a sudden, you know, the place is just overloaded with paranormal activity, you know? And I think that it's hard to say exactly what Butch said over all these years and what he probably remembers from when it happened. But I don't know to me, the fact that Butch is like the only thing that was real was the murders. All of the rest of it's a hoax is pretty telling. Right. And the paranormal activity that the Lutz family experienced, I mean, was all their own testimony there wasn't any witnesses other than their immediate family inside the home that experienced, you know, the levitation and all those things that we already covered. But for me, when I hear Ed and Lorraine and Lorraine even said this in an interview, but this particular house in her opinion was one of the most haunted houses she had ever stepped foot into. In fact, when she did step into it for the first time, she felt like an overwhelming sensation of like an evil, you know, entity or, you know, just paranormal activity in general. So hearing that from Lorraine Warren, where she's investigated tons of cases that have all had like somewhat similar characteristics, it makes me want to believe that maybe most of this stuff did actually happen. On the flip side, though, I would have to say that, it's also very convenient that it's all relatively the same, you know, cause Lorraine has said many times that in interviews that this was the most paranormal activity I've ever experienced. And yet this was like the fifth time that she said that, you know, it, it's very hard because with Ed and Lorraine Warren, again, you know, the amount of money that they have made off of their paranormal cases is, is a lot. I mean, they have over 20 books They're, You know, the conjuring series there, uh, they own a piece of that. So it, it's, it's very difficult. Cause I think there's a lot of really honest, hardworking paranormal investigators out there that don't make a huge profit or get rich or famous off of paranormal cases that, you know, actually are doing real investigations. And I think it's difficult with the Warrens because it seems that, they are there to sort of get, you know, the best possible story that they can because then they turn around and write a book about it. You know, how many other paranormal investigators, you know, 
experience things but don't have enough to write an actual novel about the fact that these two seemingly were so special that they were able to experience time and time again all of this extremely intense paranormal activity is very suspicious to me and i'm not skeptical as far as paranormal activity goes i think there's absolutely hauntings and paranormal activity i i also think it's good to be concerned about individuals that are purely profiting off of it because at the end of the day you know their intentions become skewed once money gets involved into any sort of profession or any sort of honest work it becomes hard to tell what's the real reason for doing it and is it for the money or is it for the actual you know act of performing a paranormal investigation even if that means that that the result of your investigation isn't going to be this big crazy story or or all of this evidence that you captured. I mean, there's so many investigators that you could look at today that, you know, over a course of their career, they only capture a few things. And then on the flip side, you have all these others that are out there that are, you know, doing all these investigations and then time and time and time again, they're capturing all this really crazy evidence. And, you know, it really makes you wonder like, you know, how much of that is real and how much of that is, you know, faked or altered in some way, shape or form. It's, I think it's really hard and, and it really, you know, it's hard to know when you're looking at something that's real and when you're looking at something that is, you know, potentially fake and, or just exaggerated. I think a lot of it is exaggerated and overdone in order to make it seem scarier than it really is, you know, cause I think you could go through and pinpoint all these different things. Like we said, the, the pig entity ended up being the cat. The priest was never there at the house. He said, I was never there. I mean, George hundred percent lied about a lot of the things that happened in the house. And then to have Bush to fail, say the only thing that was evil was me killing my family. That to me is like, you got to take that into consideration and think, well, yeah, there's a really good possibility that this was, there was nothing paranormal that happened in this house at all. And the real evil itself was purely, you know, human based. It was nothing that we can't see, you know, but at the same time, you brought up a great point that perhaps the land itself going back even before the house was even built may have been cursed, may have been haunted in some way. Yeah. Cause later on investigators determined that that particular piece of land that that house was sitting on was actually related to like a native American tribe. And they say that the particular Indian chief was still dwelling on that property and was still there uh, in, as like a paranormal entity and that it became enraged when that house was built and would just do whatever it could to get the fam- any family that moved into the house to get the hell out of there. Which I think is a very real possibility. The way that I kind of look at paranormal activity is that I definitely believe that there's paranormal activity in which things happen that can't be explained. You see things that can't be explained. There's sounds that can't be explained. There's, you know, just things that you don't even notice until later on. Like, for example, in previous episodes of our own show, we've had people leaving timestamps of, you know, there's one, I can't even remember which episode it was, but we had literally a little light orb that looked like it was came off of this light right behind me and floated across the screen where it just disappeared. 
And when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's really, that's really fucking crazy. Like, yeah, that's really hard to explain. Cause it was literally like a little dot, like a marble mm-hmm. of light that came off of, of the light itself. And then it just disappeared. And when I saw it, I'm like, holy shit. And I mean, there's actually been some weird things happening in the studio before. And this is a brand new building that we built where we're sitting in right now. And definitely have had some unexplained activity in here, whether or not it's an evil entity or not. I don't yeah. know. But at the same time, it makes me want to research. The, it's obviously not the studio itself because uh-huh. this is brand new. And, you know, we've smudged it. You know, we've done all everything to you know make sure it's free and clear but at the same time i gotta research the land on which i've built this because yeah maybe there's something there from long ago that yeah you know still has some you know force to it a little bit of activity left over so very interesting and we've noticed that a lot in here like for some reason all of the electronics at times can be kind of messed with like i don't know if you guys ever noticed this but Sometimes the cameras, you know, they'll flash like the picture flashes, like almost like something hits it and it's not the editing. It's literally just happening on on its own. And how you brought up how someone saw that little orb of light moving behind you and how it's so subtle. And you and I, we were talking about it. We're like, we can't think of anything that can debunk this. It's not dust. It's not a moth, although there's moths. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> there's a hell of moths flying around in here. So if you see something scurry across the uh, screen all of a sudden, yeah. it's a moth. It's not a light orb or anything like that. Uh, if it's a little brown thing. The other thing that was really crazy, though, is the other day we were in here and uh, there's a stand that has a big old lava lamp on it and a giant crystal on it that is very heavy, at least five five pounds or so. And I, and I kid you not, all of a sudden, this fucking little stand over here started rocking back and forth. Whoa. No joke. Out of nowhere. When we were recording Mile Higher, like it literally rocked back and forth and it was on. And the only thing that it could have been realistically was the, when the lava lamp, when it has, it, it kind of bursts once it heats up uh-huh. and there was enough force within that lava lamp to shake the whole thing. But to me, I've never seen that before. And I turn this lava lamp on and off all the time. Yeah. And I've never seen this thing rock. And even that crystal was like the whole table was kind of like bouncing back and forth for like a good 15, 20 seconds. And then it just stopped. Interesting. And we all looked at it. We're like, what was that? Yeah. Literally just started moving and then stopped. And I was like, there's no way that just like some goo inside a lava lamp is heavy enough to force a table with a i'm talking a big heavy crystal guys like this is not even like a this is heavy and i kid you not it was rocking back and forth it was wild that is so wild man yeah i'm telling you man there's definitely been some weird things happening in here for sure so i I don't know And, and i thought we cleared it all out but i guess not so maybe there's something going on with the land but anyway as far as wrapping up this story I mean, it's pretty clear that, you know, this, a lot of this was probably faked or hoaxed in order to make a profit because tons and tons of money has been made off of this. Obviously the Amityville horror, when the book was released, it made $4 million in sales within the first year of publication. Uh, There's been in 1979, an independent movie was named 
uh, and it became a box office smash. And then the original film was made remade in 2005. And then in 2017, they did Amityville, the awakening. So, and then there's been all these lawsuits between the Lutzes and William Weber and Bush DeFeo's attorney. And of course, you know, after the Lutzes vacated the home and went on to make all their money, the residents that have since moved into the house decades later have said that there's been absolutely nothing suspicious or unusual at all. And that to me is often the biggest telling factor in whether or not a house is haunted because, you know, if a house is truly this haunted to the point where the paranormal activity is levitating you, I mean, there's green slime coming out of the walls. I mean, if it's that crazy, then you would think that there would be some bit of paranormal activity that would be left over. And these people don't claim to like, you know, do all these things to get rid of paranormal activity either. They just claim nothing happens at all. So for me at the end of the day, unfortunately I have to go with the fact that the Amityville haunting was not real and it was hoaxed and George Lutz, you got to give him credit, smart guy in order to capitalize on this opportunity to create a really, really great story that went on to entertain all of us. So you got to give him that. And at the end of the day, Butch DeFeo is, is the most evil entity here. I mean, he's the, he's the one that, and why he did it. I don't think we'll ever know exactly why maybe there is external factors that played into it, but the only evil here is him. Yeah. I I just have such a hard time believing that the story is true. And, you know, it's so hard for me because, you know, I love Ed and Lorraine Warren and I'm behind them a hundred percent, but for, for this particular case and, you know, kind of everything that unfolded and the fact that the next person who moved into the house experienced nothing is just alarming because I would feel like if there actually was paranormal activity going on, he would at least hear something or see something, you know, right. But he didn't. So nothing. I'm with you. Normal house. And now they're just like, stay the fuck away from our house. We're trying to live. It's not haunted because everybody wants to go see it. Obviously. I mean, it's a, it's a historical landmark at this point, a haunted one at that. And so they actually changed the address from 112 to 108, which I don't see that already got out. I don't see why that really mattered at all because they had so many problems after the Lutzes came out with this whole thing of ghost hunters and people, you know, people just fans of, of the Amityville series wanting to go and see the house. I mean, it's, you can still go see it today. I think so. Let us know if any of you out there have ever checked out the Amityville house. I'd be interested to hear. And also what do you guys think of the Amityville movies? Yay or nay? I don't know. Definitely not my favorite horror movies by any means, but uh, the original is definitely better than the remake in my opinion. But we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode of the Lights Out Podcast. If you did, definitely subscribe. Definitely follow us uh, on Spotify, Twitter, Instagram. Lights Out Cast is our handle. But yeah, until next week, Lights Out, everybody.